There we go. Okay. Um, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Those that didn't bring your Bible, shame on you. <laughs> but it, it's up there on the uh, PowerPoint there. Okay, this is a reading out of Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out uh, not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. It's just powerful, Lord. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and the marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And Lord God, as I begin to speak on this subject of biblical servitude, Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, give me the words to speak, Lord. I've spent a lot of time in preparation for it, Lord, but that goes all to naught, Lord, unless your Holy Spirit moves here and uh, convicts all of our hearts, Lord God, of what it really means to be a servant. Lord, so I pray that you would anoint these lips of clay and anoint uh, the ears of my listeners, Lord God, and truly teach us from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to speak to you from the message, Cultivating a Servant's Heart. Uh, next slide, please. As you can tell from the title, I'm going to be speaking about servitude. Specifically, biblical servitude, because the Bible has so much to say on the subject. You know, as I prepared for this, I was amazed at how much scripture there is about being a servant. And specifically, what Jesus taught on it, because he taught an awful lot about being a servant. And it's not easy to preach on this matter, because it runs so contrary to the way that we think in this uh, natural world. When I was in third grade, I remember being out at recess one day and I looked around at my uh, classmates and I heard them saying, well, I can beat you up, you know, I can take you, you look at me cross-eyed, I'm gonna pound you, you know. 
<clears throat> that kind of thing. Everybody wants to be tough, you know. Everybody wants to be the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho. That's human nature, isn't it? You know, uh, kids have their own hierarchy. You know, they've got their own little pecking order. You know, we, we know this, you know, from when we were growing up. And it's not necessarily who's the toughest physically, but also the, he who has the sharpest tongue or the quickest wit. I think it's, you know, us male folk, you know, we really look up to that uh, physical aspect. aspect. But, you know, uh, girls have their own little hierarchy too, you know. <laughs> nobody wants to be the weakling, you know. Nobody wants to be the downtrodden. And in this world, it seems like nobody wants to be the servant. We love playing King of the Hill, you know. Anybody played that when you were a kid? You know, you play King of the Hill, you pick up this little mound of dirt or something like that, and you try to scratch and claw and fight your way up. You don't care who you step on. You don't care who you push down or pull down. And then if you reach the top, then you've got a new worry. You've got to worry about all the other people that are trying to knock you down, knock you off the, uh, uh, the hill. And it doesn't just stop at childhood. It continues on to adulthood, too. It continues on in the, the workplace. It com, uh, comes to, into play in the political and social scene. And regrettably, it also applies to the church, too. Too often we see the, this same type game, King of the Hill, being played out in the church. And it shouldn't be that way, brothers and sisters. But I remember looking there at my peers at the tender age of uh, eight and thinking to myself, you know, there's something seriously wrong with this. You know, there's something seriously wrong with the human race. And almost instinctively, I knew that this was not the way that God wanted us to be. It's not what he created us to be. It's not what, you know, it's not, it wasn't his will. And coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, this happened to me at eight, at the age of eight, and it was just about the time I got saved. And I don't remember much about the message that I received that, that day when I received Jesus Christ into my heart. But it was basically that I was a sinner and a sinner needed a savior. And Jesus paid the price for my sin. And so I asked him into my life. I think that that, you know, when he spoke to my heart about the, this is not the way that he wanted man to be, it's because he was convicting me of my own personal sin. Years later, after spending time in his word, I found that this was true. And because this idea of king of the hill and dog eat dog and, and everything else, that's not what Jesus has to say about his kingdom, uh, the way his kingdom is supposed to work. Uh, next slide. This is what Jesus says about what his kingdom and the way his kingdom is supposed to work. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 35. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, 
what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept silent um, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Later, a similar incident occurs. Uh, next slide, please. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let, us, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Okay, next slide. When the ten heard about this, the other ten, that is, they, were, they became very indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their officials exercise authority over them. That's the world's point of view right there. But it is not to be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Next slide, please. Another time. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand before them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Two final scriptures. Next slide, please. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. And finally, Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who... Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Next slide. 
I think we can pretty well see from these scriptures how Jesus felt on this matter. He was saying that being the top dog, the big cheese, the head honcho, was not to be a priority uh, for us in our lives. The priority, on the other hand, for us should be to be a servant. That is, we should excel in serving others. And the wonderful thing about Jesus, he not only preached it, but he lived it too. Recall that last scripture in Mark chapter 10 that I read, chapter 10, verse 45. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, what is a biblical servant? Next slide, please. We see this in our scripture reading in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, I like the King James Version uh, rendering of uh, verse uh, um, uh, 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. You know, strife speaks of contention and argumentation. You know, you ever run into people like this? You know, all they want to do is argue. Anybody know what I mean? They don't care about what's right. All they want to do is argue for argument's sake. You know, they just want to win the argument. You know, trying to, you know, the old one-uppance, one you know, as they say. Uh, I, I like what my sister told me, uh, you know, recently, uh, you know, when she was visiting. And she said, she said, you know, the older you get, you learn to pick your fights. You know, that is, you know, you, did, you hear something, somebody will say something that you might disagree with. You know, don't be so quick to, you know, uh, come back again. You know, pick your fights. You know, don't, you know, is it really worth it? You know, if it's for the gospel, then it's worth it. But, you know, so many other things that we wind up arguing about really don't matter anyway. And all they can do is cause strife and contention. <clears throat> Vain, vainglory, or vain conceit, that speaks to us of pride. And this is the very antithesis of the uh, next quality that we're going to see in verse 4, which is humility. And I'm going to talk a lot about that in a little while. But for right now, let's look at another scripture on uh, this subject. And uh, this is uh, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, next slide, please. First Corinthians 13 is perhaps the greatest treatise on the subject of love in history. And Paul lists the qualities of uh, love. He, he goes, uh, talks about them in verses 
4 through 7, but I just want to look at the uh, first two verses there, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. Uh, see, is that up there? Oh. I think you might advance too far. Uh, no, uh, up, up one more. There. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, there it is there. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Listen to this carefully here. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. That gets, that gets rid of that being the top dog. You know, uh, usually we envy, you know, we see somebody up above us and say, I want that position. I want to get up there. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Unconditional love, called agape, in the New Testament. Next slide, if you would. Okay, I, I seem to be missing something here, but uh, uh, never mind. Unconditional love, called agape love in, in the New Testament, is the foundation for biblical servitude. If you don't have this unconditional love in your heart for God and others, you'll never succeed as a biblical servant in God's kingdom. And this unconditional love will lead to other characteristics of biblical servitude. And for one thing, it leads to humility. You know, humility is the mark of a great leader. Moses in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says... Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You know, Moses is the greatest leader in the Old Testament because he had humility. And humility is best described as power that is under control. That is, you've got the power, but you don't flaunt it. Another characteristic of a biblical servant, you esteem others better than yourself. You put the interest of others above your own personal interests. Translation, don't just consider your needs only, but also the needs of others. And now we come to the very heart of this message. And that is that Jesus is the supreme example of a biblical servant. Next slide. Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in light, uh, human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Now, this is a very famous 
passage in the New Testament. It's called the Kenosis passage by scholars. Kenosis comes from the Greek word kenao in verse 7, which means to empty. It's translated here, made of himself nothing, and in the King James it says, made himself of no reputation. Literally, it says that he emptied himself. Many Bible scholars also speculate that uh, this may have been a first century hymn that they would sing in church. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it, it sounds good anyway. Uh, my Schofield Reference Bible has a note here that the wording in the Greek is one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what did Jesus empty himself of when he came to earth? He emptied himself of his visible glory and his right to act independently of, as God uh, apart from his Father's will. Next, uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> Jesus did everything here on earth in total reliance upon the Holy Spirit according to the will of the Father. Just like Moses, he was power under control. And Paul seizes upon this early Christian hymn as an example of what we are to be as Christian servants. He says, first of all, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, why does he say this? Let this mind be in you. You know, he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 16, that we have the mind of Christ. Well, simply, it, he says that because that the mind of Christ, like all other things in the Christian life, is apprehended and acted upon by faith. And he'll talk about this a little later on in Philippians chapter 2, where he'll say in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He also talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world. We're not to think the way the world thinks regarding being the top dog or the big cheese or head honcho. But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Amen? Amen. What did you think the last Romans was? Romans 12, verse 2. It doesn't happen automatically, brothers and sisters. You have to work at it. Verses 6 and 7 of uh, Philippians 2 is an illustration of the incarnation of Jesus. It says that he existed in the form of God, and then he took upon himself the form of a servant and was found in uh, human likeness. Form here in both scriptures, both verses, is the Greek word morphe. That's where we get our word morphology, along with many other instances where you have that root word of morphe. 
Paul's point here, Jesus became a servant. He was God, and then he took upon himself the form of a servant in human likeness. He didn't have to do that, you know that. But you take a look at the humble circumstances of Jesus' life. He was born in a stable. And I like to point this out, you know, when I've preached before on uh, uh, Christmas, you know, the birth of Jesus, born in that stable. That dirty, filthy place. Can you imagine how that thing smelled? The unsanitary conditions. You know, not the place that you'd really want for a child to be born. But that's where God chose for his son to be born. Then he had his earthly ministry. Then he makes his triumphant entry to Jerusalem. Not in a chariot drawn by white horses or on a white horse. What did he do? He sat on a donkey. And not just any donkey, it was a colt. A young donkey. I don't know how that thing <laughs> supported his weight, but it did. And then finally, you've got his death on the cross. Not exactly what you'd expect for a coronation service. And what kind of uh, crown did he wear? A crown of thorns. Jesus lived that life of humility and in humble circumstances. And Paul's point here in the Kenosis passage, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming a servant. He took upon himself human likeness. You know, I served in the foreign field, and uh, I like to say, you know, I like to challenge people. Who was the very first foreign missionary, foreign Christian missionary? A lot of people will say, well, it is the Apostle Paul. No, it wasn't the Apostle Paul. First Christian foreign missionary was Jesus Christ himself because he left his home there in heaven. He came here to earth. He lived among us. He died, paid for our sins. He identified with us, brothers and sisters, and if you're ever going to serve in the foreign field, that's what you've got to do, is you've got to identify with the people that you are reaching. Jesus did this. He took our form. You know, he loved the, the title, the Son of Man. He was the Son of God, but he didn't call himself the Son of God very often. He liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man because he totally identified with us. And he became obedient. He obeyed his father strictly in everything, even to the point of, being, uh, of dying on the cross. And so the biblical servant has to be, do two things. He or she has got to be humble, and he or she has got to be obedient. One final illustration. Next slide, please. Uh, looks like we, again. Next slide again, please. 
We got a little bit behind here. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, next slide. Okay, uh, one more time. <laughs> Sorry, we got a little bit behind there. That's uh, my fault. Okay, the final thing is this biblical servant has got to go the extra mile. Matthew chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. And if someone wants to sue you and take his tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one that asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now what does this going the extra mile mean? Next slide. Some of you don't, probably don't even know this scripture, but it's so true here. Jesus is giving an illustration of servitude. And he says, suppose, this is in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you have been told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants or unprofitable servants, as the King James Version says. We are unprofitable servants we have only done our duty. So what do we learn here from this particular passage? The biblical servant then goes above and beyond the call of duty. Think about that. The biblical servant goes above and beyond the call of duty. Now Jesus not only taught this, but he also lived it. Next slide. This is that great story to begin the upper room discourse. John chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 and then 12 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed the full extent of of his love. And then you have that great story of him pouring a bowl of water and going around to each one of those disciples one by one and washing their feet. I won't take the time to read it. I want to leave the time at the end here for some practical applications. But I want to pick up here after he's finished washing their feet and in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. His place is the head, you know, the, the table there. He's about ready to administer the Last Supper, you know, which we celebrate at communion. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher 
and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. For I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This was a perfect example, brothers and sisters, of Jesus going the extra mile for his disciples. You know, he didn't have to do this, did he? The next day he was going to the cross for them to, to pay for their sins to, and for our sins too. But that wasn't enough for him. He decided to give the classic example of a biblical servant. And it was motivated by his love. If you look back there, verse 1, you know, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed the full extent of his love. I love his saying, too, that he is the Lord and Master, but that didn't stop him from getting down on his hands and knees and washing their feet which was the task back in that, those days, in that culture, of the lowest of the low, lowliest servants. And he did it for them. And this, he says, this is an example for us to do for each other. And he promises a blessing. You remember there at the end of the Kenosis passage, after it talks about how he became obedient to the end, even to the death on the cross. Right after that it says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that of the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God promises that blessing too, if we will learn to be a biblical servant. Now, I want to wrap this up with uh, three practical applications, and there's, there could be many more. Next slide. Being a servant, biblical servant, extends to the various roles that we play in life. And these include being parents, you know, if you're going to be a parent, your children are not your slaves, and you serve them. I remember watching this uh, movie one time, uh, I think it was uh, Three Men and a Baby. Anybody see that movie? You remember the point where the, the, these three men, they come in contact, uh, 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 possession of this baby girl, and the first time comes when she soils her diaper. And, you know, they start to, you know, take the diaper off. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's so horrible there. That's so, 
I'm not going to do that. You do it, you know. They're trying to pass the buck. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I raised three kids my, of my own, and I never was like that. You know, I went down and I got my hands dirty and changed their uh, dirty diapers. I, I'm not one of these men that goes around, well, let the wife do that. I, I don't want to <laughs> bother with that. But I remember changing the diaper of uh, one of them uh, one day, and Lord spoke to my heart and showed me that's what biblical servitude is all about. Because you're the parent, you're supposed to be the better, but you've got to get down and get your hands dirty by doing that. I'm serving him, you know, I'm serving here. I had two, two boys and one girl. I can't remember which one it was when God really spoke to my heart. But that's what being a biblical servant is all about, is sometimes you've got to get your hands dirty while you're doing it. And doesn't just stop when they're babies either. All throughout their life, they're going to make messes of themselves, and you've got to get down and help them clean it up. That's what biblical servitude is all about. Leadership roles, you know, political, and sometimes we assume social leadership rules too. I used to uh, coach my son's baseball teams. You know, I had, I had a ball doing that. I had more fun than the kids did, I think. But when you're there, you know, you, you encounter this thing, you know, everybody wants their team to do well and you want to, you know, climb the ladder and everything. I was just content just to be out there with the boys and teach them how to play the game, you know. I never wanted to, I didn't want to be a manager, you know. I didn't want all the administrative uh, headaches that they have to go through. Well, how come my kid's uh, not playing shortstop? He's better than what, who you got out there. Well, I hate to tell you, uh, uh, lady, but your son couldn't catch a dead fly with wings, you know, <laughs> that, that type of thing. I didn't want all of the administrative headaches, but I love being out there and uh, serving those boys, hitting, hitting them fly balls, pitching, batting practice, and things like that. When you're in a leadership role, you're not supposed to be autocratic. And when I've been, I've served in Thailand, and I see this over and over again, as bad as things are in here, it seems like they're worse over there. You know, somebody gets into a leadership position over there and they've got the attitude, well, this is my own private kingdom. I'm going to run it the way I want to run it. And if you don't like it, you know, take a hike. That type of thing. We're not to be autocratic if we get into a position of leadership. We're to be, have the attitude that we're there to serve the people that are underneath us. And finally, the ministry. The shepherd serves the flock. Too often we have pastors, and I know Pastor Sandra is not like that. I have the, you know, the deepest admiration for her because she does have a servant's heart. You know, with the shepherd is not to say, well, the sheep serve me. No, you serve the sheep. You feed the sheep. And if you give me a pastor that's a great preacher, and give me another pastor that has a servant's heart, I will take the one with a servant's heart. Six days a week and twice on Sunday, as the saying goes. 
That's what's really important in the ministry. Whatever ministry God puts you in here in the church, you do it with a servant's heart. Now I want to wrap up the message just by saying this. The title of the message was Cultivating a Servant's Heart. When you cultivate a field or you cultivate an orchard, you have to work at it. It doesn't happen automatically. You've got to work at it. And Paul uses the illustration of a of you know the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And really having a servant's heart is one of the these fruits because it's all based on love as I pointed out before. It's based on love. Love uh, uh, made Jesus go to the cross. Love for his father and love for us. It was love that prompted him to wash his disciples' feet. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. I've mentioned this many times before. The fruit of the Spirit is love and all the other manifestations, joy, peace, gentleness, humility, goodness, kindness, those are all things that spring off of the love. You won't have any of those things if you don't first have love. And you've got to cultivate that. You've got to cultivate the fruit in your life. And that's how the servant's heart is. You've got to cultivate that because that Adamic nature wants to continue to assert itself and have you may be that top dog, that big cheese or head honcho. That's the Adamic nature. And you've got to put that down and con- consciously put it down. And the fruit doesn't just happen overnight either. You ever see a, a tree, you know, apple tree? You just look at it and see, mm, boom, you know, there's an apple on the tree. It takes time, doesn't it? And it takes time to develop a servant's heart and to develop the fruit in your life. I want to close, and then I'll turn it over to uh, the pastor. And there's a little song that I wanted to share with everybody that kind of uh, embodies what I'm trying to uh, uh, speak on 